All right, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be looking at briefly, looking at verses 18 through 23. Matthew 1, 18 through 23, as we kick off a four-week Advent series. Uh, it's the beginning of Advent. If you don't know what that is, uh, like most Baptists, we're Baptists. Most Baptists do not know what Advent is. Uh, it's not a part of most Baptist churches' traditions or observances. It's it, a bit more so these days. We're going to talk about that. We will explain it in just a little bit. But we're going to start by turning to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his merry mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray again that you would do what we always ask you to do. We're asking you to do what we cannot do for ourselves and what we do not deserve. We're asking you to help us teach us, and to change us, especially our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The nearness of God, the name Emmanuel, the name of Jesus, right, promised from the Old Testament is Emmanuel. It means God with us, God coming near. And that can get lost on us, why that's such a special thing. But if we take a step back, just to kind of consider nearness in general, nearness is usually a good thing. We usually talk about things near to us. They are near and dear, right? Like we usually nearness is good. Not always. I mean, if you're on the airplane and the guy has BO sitting next to you, nearness is not good. Nobody likes that. Uh, I was on an airplane one time and a guy threw up. Now you'd think that was okay because he's he's a, he's in one seat behind me, but he threw up and it hit the wall and it cascaded onto my aisle. So nearness is not always good. Most of the time when we talk about nearness, it's a good thing. Nearness, uh, you know, you're like, oh, the best seats are up front, right? You want to get close to the action, whether you're at a sporting event or some kind of a play or something like that. Um, nearness, to be close. If, we, if something is important to us, we say it's close to my heart, right? Near, near, near and dear, that, that idea. And... People know this, like grandparents, like think about it this way, like if somebody is close, like you want to be close to your grandkids, right? If you're a grandparent, you want to be close to your grandkids, you love them and you want to be close. Now, yes, that means proximity, but it means more than that, right? It means relationship, right? It means, it means a, a relational intimacy. You want to be close. And parents should want this with their children, right? And, and aunts and uncles have this with their nieces and nephews. And, and brothers and sisters kind of go in and out of it, right? Like, 
Hopefully they love each other. They want to be close. So there is proximity. I mean, you've seen parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles scoop up kids, like, and they scoop up the kid, and they, what, they hug them tight, right? And you want to hug them so tight, you, you could break them. But, but it's like you, you want to just be smooshed into one. That's how much you love some people. You want to be close, and that's good. Closeness is good. So we get that, right? Nearness. Relationally, that's good. And religion, in, in many cases, religion for people in general is a means by which they attempt to get near God, right? It's attempt by which, it's their attempt uh, by which they, they can maybe hug God, right? They want to get close to him, and so that's their effort, their sort of ambition, their approach. But Advent teaches us a different way. Advent shows us something very different than what most religions show us. And by Advent, I mean the gospel itself. And the principle that we'll see is this. And we'll see this throughout the whole series of Advent, but we're going to start with it today. The principle is that God has drawn near to us so we could draw near to him. See, like we want to draw near to God. I think we, we know intuitively, instinctively, like we are created to know the God who made us. And of course, we create all kinds of different ways in which we conceive of God and different ways in which we think we can approach God. But it all stems from this basic yearning, like we're made for something bigger than ourselves. We're made for the one who made us. And so how do we connect? And for all of our attempts and, 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 and appeals, none of it will really work. But thankfully, what God does is that God draws near to us so that we can draw near to him. So we're going to explore that today. Let's talk a little bit about Advent, though, in case you don't know what Advent is. The word Advent means arrival. That's what it means. So to age. You can think about it that way. Advent means arrival. Advent, arrival. You can burn it into your brain. You'll always know. It's referring, right, in terms of the, the Christian holiday, it's referring to the arrival of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, but you can think about it bigger than this, right? I mean, of course it is about Jesus, but Jesus... Arrival is about the arrival of the promises of God. It's even the arrival of the very person of God, because Jesus is not just some prophet, just some teacher, just some guru, just somebody here to do the Lord's bidding. When Jesus of Nazareth is born of the Virgin Mary, it is the arrival of God in the flesh. So Advent means arrival. And technically, there are two Advents. There's the first Advent and the second Advent. The first Advent is the birth of Jesus Christ, what we call the incarnation, when God takes on a human nature. So he is truly human while remaining truly God. And so we have the first Advent, the, the coming of Christ. He's born, and then he's, he grows, and then he carries out his ministry, and he fulfills all righteousness, and he suffers on the cross. He dies for sins, and he rises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven, and now we await the second advent. We're waiting for him to come again, right, the second arrival. In fact, we read a passage for the Lord's Supper, for communion, and this is put on display for us beautifully. Think about the two advents as I read this again. For the grace of God has appeared, right, past tense, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, second advent 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are his people who are zealous for good works. So that's what Advent is really for. Advent is for the people of God to be encouraged as they live in between the two Advents, the first Advent, the first coming, and the second Advent. Advent starts four Sundays before Christmas, four Sundays before Christmas. I wasn't planning on doing this, Brian, but it popped into my head first service, so I'm going to share it a second time. So Brian was at this church down in a different state. And he knows some people there, and they were kind of talking. And they were like, yeah, man, we're starting Advent up uh, on this coming, this coming week. And, you know, because Brian is Brian. He's like, that's not the right week to start Advent on. <laughs> I would have done the same thing. He was really nice about it. He was cool about it. He's like, he's like well, maybe we're wrong, which we definitely weren't, because we know it's the f- four Sundays before Christmas. So uh, he explains them. And like, so, you know, it's, I'm pretty sure it's this, you guys are starting a week early. And their response was, yeah, I don't know. We're just going to do whatever. And uh, so don't call it Advent if you're not doing it four weeks before. Just call it something else. Pre-Christmas celebration, that's fine. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. It's not a biblical command. We're just having a little fun. Advent is just another opportunity for us to think about Jesus and to focus on one particular aspect of him, and that is his human nature and his sacrifice that he made on behalf of us. Today, his drawing near. So, Today, we're looking at Jesus being the very nearness of God. And all I want to do is look at three questions. We're going to consider three questions. We're going to answer these three questions. We're going to consider them together. And then we're going to be sent out on our way. Hopefully, my prayer has been that we would walk and live with an awareness of just how close God is to us and we are to him. So three questions. Here they are. I'll tell you what they are up front in case you like to write things down. Uh, Number one, uh, why would God have to draw near? Why would God have to come near? Isn't God everywhere at once? So what are we talking about? If he's he's omnipresent, he's fully everywhere. Why? What do we we mean by this? Why would he have to? Number two, what is the nearness of God? What are we really talking about? Number three, how do we respond to the idea that God draws near? So first, why would God have to draw near. Well, it's in the passage. It ultimately says it in this passage in Matthew chapter 1, right? It says uh, that, you know, Joseph finds out that Mary is with child. Now, he's told by the angel she has been innocent in this. Uh, The child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She is still a a virgin. So uh, Joseph, though, can't handle this. I don't know what he believes or doesn't believe, but he's, he's getting ready to divorce her. So the angel says, no, 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 this is of the Lord, and here you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. So this is ultimately like the need, right? Jesus is arriving to rescue sinful humanity, and you're going to call him uh, Jesus, and this is to fulfill the promise, right, that God is with us. His name is Emmanuel. The promise has been given over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. This passage right here uh, is, being, is, is a quote from... Uh, Isaiah 7.14. So when the angel is saying this to, to Joseph, he's quoting one of the promises that was given in the prophetic book of Isaiah. And you can look at, at other books. You can, you can look at Zechariah 9.9. Just listen, Zechariah 9.9. Here's another prophecy about the arrival or the advent of the Son of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is 
coming to you, arrival, advent, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So not only do we have the general promise of a savior who is going to come, who is going to be king, who is going to reign, who is going to draw near, but we've got specific prophecies that Jesus fulfills by riding into Jerusalem on an actual donkey. Or we can go to Micah chapter 5. Just listen to verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, took me three attempts uh, first service to pronounce that, <laughs> Ephrathah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus has been promised from the very beginning. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right? Genesis 3.15, when the curse is being pronounced onto the serpent, and we learn that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will one day conquer the devil. He will crush the head of our enemy. So this has been promised again and again and again. Why? Because, fundamentally, because we are needy, helpless sinners. Why is God drawing near in Jesus if he's already everywhere? Because we're not just talking proximity, like God is everywhere at once. We're also talking utility, like you can be somewhere and do nothing, right? That's a lot of what I do. <laughs> I go somewhere and I don't do, I don't do anything. Just stand around. Um, so God, we don't just need him here. We need him to do, right? And so he draws near to what? To save. He draws near to act. He, he draws near to rescue. And so it's, it's not just proximity, it's utility. And it's not just utility, it's also community. Because he's not just there to do a job, right? He's actually there to solve a problem and to do so in the context of a covenantal love. Like what drives him, what moves him is that he actually loves us. And this is, this is, this is big, right? I, I have a friend who's a sheriff's deputy. Um, and uh, and, I, and I, I, like, I like cops. I like good cops. I don't like bad cops, right? So I, I would generally just say, like, oh, yeah, I like cops. Uh, but if they're bad, then I really have a major problem, and I have a bad attitude with them. But good cops are great. I just got pulled over and got a ticket by a good cop. They were right. I was wrong. I was wrong. Uh, so anyways, um, so I'm, I like the cops, but they're... I, I don't need them to love me to do their job, right? If they're going to step in and, and defend or protect or issue citations, whatever it is, like, we don't have to have any kind of community uh, outside of mutual respect. But God draws near, and God acts, and he does, and he accomplishes his plan. He fulfills his promises. But he doesn't just do so out of a sense of duty like an officer or a soldier might have. He does so because he loves sinners. He loves us. See, the problem is not that God has turned his back on us. The problem is that we have turned our backs on God. God has to draw near because we've withdrawn from him by our sin, by our unbelief. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, these are two verses that God just really stuck in my heart as a brand new, Christ, as a brand new Christian uh, when I read them. And they've just always rattled around in my head. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. 
But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. It's not that God can't hear or can't save. It's that we have separated ourselves by our sins. We have turned away. We have run off. Thus, the need for God to draw near to us, the need for God to draw near to me in my waywardness. That's the need. We need God to draw near, draw near because we run off. And you know what? We don't just run off. We, we run away. And, and we didn't just run away. We ran away and we got lost, right? And we, and we didn't just get, get lost. We got so lost, we could never find our way back. And even if we did have a map to find our way back, we couldn't make the journey on our own. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We need God to draw near to do it. We need God to draw near to forgive us of those sins, to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. We need God to make us whole because we have blown up and broken our lives, the very image of God in us. We have virtually destroyed. We need God to restore that. We need God to draw near to give us our identity back, which we are so feverishly attempting to create through the, the, the means and the opportunities and the creations of the world, which never really satisfy. And that's another thing. We need God to draw near to teach us where to find true satisfaction and joy and purpose because it all comes together. That's why we need God to draw near. Because if he doesn't, we will remain utterly lost. So that's why we need God to draw near. All right, so then what is the nearness of God? What do we mean by that, the nearness of God? If God is everywhere at once, what does it mean for him to be near? So I'm going to give you a broad, big definition that we can unpack. Let's say that the nearness of God is God's loving, that's a very important word here, loving protection and provision for his people. It's God's loving protection of and provision for his people. Now, of course, again, this is not just God doing and acting, right? Providing, protecting. It stems from, it begins with a heart that beats with love for his creatures. And not just his creatures, for sinners who have, who have turned their, their backs on him. So, it is God's loving protection and provision for his people. And protection and provision does not mean that we will never, that we will never be hurt. It, will, it doesn't mean that we will never be hungry. We will be hurt, and we will be hungry. In fact, the reality is, part of the reason we need God to draw near and to provide for us is because the pain of life is oftentimes the loss or the absence of those things that we so desperately do desire and oftentimes need. In other words, we need God to draw near to be our satisfaction because so many of the things that we want and need in life are out of reach. They are too far away. They are not near. So God protects us and provides. So how does he protect us? Well, he protects our soul. He protects our faith. He provides us with what we need to persevere. Think about it like this. Um, God protects us and provides for us by saving us from sin, from corruption, from death, from hell. He helps us. He helps us in our journey. He strengthens us. He heals us. He 
forgives us. He restores us. He is actively doing all of these things. We call it the work of sanctification, where we are being conformed to the image of Christ, or the imago Dei is being reformed in us, the image of God. We become more like our maker through this process. And along the journey, he is strengthening our hands and informing and transforming our minds so that we can navigate this world, however difficult or enjoyable we may find it to be, because both difficulty and pleasure are distracting from our purpose. So he, he draws near, uh, loving, protecting, providing for us. Think about it like this. God drawing near is not just God being close, but it is God stooping down to see us, to look in our eyes, right? Like a, like a, a father or a grandmother might stoop down to look into the face of a child. To stoop down, he draws near to draw us in. That's what he's doing. Like it's, you ever hug somebody and they don't know how to hug you back? It feels weird, right? That's how most of you hug me because I don't know what to do. I'm always like, I was like, hey, <laughs> cool. Because I'm socially awkward. I don't mind it. I just don't know what to do. I don't know why. I just like freeze up. And uh, so it's like, it's like you want you want them to embrace, you embrace somebody, you want them to embrace you back, right? Because there is this love there. There is this community. God drawing near is him stooping down, drawing us in close to himself for that protection, for that provision, for that care. It is, God drawing near is, is a communion. It's a communion with him. It's relational. It's relational. You know what it means for God to draw near? It means that God is knowable, that we can know him. We can actually, I mean, you can't know God exhaustively. You can't know God completely, right? Because he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and we are, well, us. Like that's just, we, will, we will not comprehend. We are finite and fallen. We are limited and broken. But we can understand what he has revealed, especially as he draws near to explain it to us by his Holy Spirit and his word. We know him. It occurred to me during, during the first service, uh, that scene in Elf where uh, Buddy uh, sees the guy dressed up as Santa Claus and he's freaking out. He's like, I know him. I know him. And everybody's like, yeah, whatever. But like, because he, he knows him and his knowledge of him is not, is not abstract. It's not just informational. It's relational. He knows him which means he is known by him. And that's, that's the idea. We're not just learning about God. His nearness means we actually know him through communion and abiding. We have a relationship. You know what it means? If we know God and God knows us, it means he hears us. He listens. And in a world where everyone is distracted and friends and family are always on their phones, and that's if they actually love you and would listen to you if they weren't so distracted. Most people aren't even going to give us that. God listens. He hears us when we cry out. He is there to help. This is the nearness of God. It, the nearness of God are all of the promises that are made in Jesus Christ and given to us. We experience them. We receive them through faith in the Savior. That's why Advent was so Big. They had been waiting for so long for the arrival of God's promises, for the arrival of God's person. We have it in Jesus. This is the promise of nearness. It is in Jesus Christ. So that's what it is fundamentally. It is a kind of, of 
communion with God based on his love for us that continues to protect us and provide for us in every spiritual way. And yeah, we may suffer in this life. We certainly will. We will experience loss and we will die. In fact, listen, just, there, there are prosperity preachers that lie all the time and tell people that if you have enough faith, God will make you healthy, God will make you wealthy, when some of the godliest and most believing Christians on the planet actually do starve to death in certain parts of the world. Is God providing for them and protecting them? He is. But not in the worldly way that they certainly would want, but he does in the way that they most want. Their soul is kept, and there will be a resurrection and a renewal of all things And there will be a conquering of death and evil and corruption and loss, a conquering of it all so that we live with God in righteousness and peace. So that's what the nearness of God brings. So how do we respond to this? What are we supposed to do in response to this promise of the nearness of God in Jesus? And so I'll say it again, big picture. Um, For you to properly respond to the nearness of God means you have to identify your need and then look to Jesus Christ, who is the nearness of God. Identify your need and then look to Jesus. And now you might think like, okay, that's easy. You start identifying your needs. And maybe you think like, I need a new car. I need a new job. Um, You know, whatever it is. And those may be real. In fact, let's just say those are real needs. Those aren't fake needs. Those are real needs. Well, even if you don't need a new car, you think you need a new car, right? So maybe let's just say there's the real needs but they aren't the deepest need, but they're real. They're superficial. That doesn't mean fake or unimportant. It just means that they're on the surface and there are deeper needs that are even more critical at the core. So you have to identify your needs and hopefully we can go past some, not forgetting them, but go past some of the superficial needs and look towards the deeper needs. And with all of those needs in mind, we then look to Jesus and ask, okay, God, in your nearness, how can you help me with the things that are out of my reach, the things that are right before me, the things that are weighty and crushing me, the the things that are killing me? Lord, how can you help strengthen, satisfy me here and now? We have to seriously consider our own sin and our suffering. Listen to James chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. I find this helpful. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Of course, this is predicated on the idea that God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ so that we can draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. But draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This sounds horrible. It sounds like the worst advice ever, right? Be Miserable, it says. Like, that's crazy. Be wretched and mourn. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this is, this is what it means to identify your need, is ultimately you have to look at your brokenness and own all of it. You have to own your waywardness and not make excuses, not look at everybody else, not just adopt a pure victim mentality. You have to look at the sins for which you are culpable, the situations that you have brought upon yourself. You have to look at your need for redemption and forgiveness and restoration and confess it. We have to begin with a posture of mourning, of regret, in order to find and rediscover the joy of salvation. 
where our heads are lifted up, where our spirits are lifted on account of it. There's always repentance and sorrow before satisfaction and joy. You want satisfaction and joy? I want satisfaction and joy. I want it. I think we, we, we're made for it, right? We're made to experience a kind of satisfaction and joy. But where can we get it? Temporally in this world, in short measure, in short supply, yes. But ultimately, we're going to find it in God and in the things that he gives us, the things that come from his hand. But first, we begin with repentance and sorrow. And we're ta- what we're talking about here, we're talking about the heart. We're not just talking about turning over a new leaf, starting a new discipline, or cleaning up your life, okay? God's not asking you to clean up your life. I'm not telling you to, well, okay, I'm telling you, clean up your life. It's a good thing to clean up your life. You should, you should take up, you should, you should pick up your trash. You should, uh, you should like do your laundry. You should mow your lawn. You should take, you should pick up your life. You should clean things up in the best way possible. All that's fine. But that's not what God is after. He's not after your external obedience apart from a heart that is oriented towards him above everything else. It's not about cleaning up your life. What God wants is your faith, is your love. He, 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 he wants you, not your actions. If he gets you, he gets it all. If he gets your heart, he gets it all. So that's what he's after. And he talks about this throughout the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 29. 29, 13. It starts off, if you just read it out of context, you just start reading it right here. It sounds like, oh, maybe something good's going to happen. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Hey, way to go. Good job, guys. While their hearts are far from me. Oh, there we go. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with the people, with wonder upon wonder. It's not good. Wonder uh, is not good here. This means awe and terror. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God says, listen, you're saying the right things. You're doing the right things. But all the while, your hearts aren't with me. You are unbelieving. You are rebellious. You can, you can carry out an, an external form of morality or religious service without ever actually believing or loving. And that's the thing that God wants. That's why God draws near to change, regenerate the heart You gotta understand that to really understand how to examine yourself, to check yourself, to look at your sin or your suffering and to own what is yours. You gotta look specifically at your own corruption and identify where you fail because once you do that, you then begin to see the beauty of Christ. Because when you can identify your particular corruptions and weaknesses, when you see your sins, you actually see the sins for which Jesus died. And it really does change things. In other words, it's a lot harder to see God if you do not first see your own sins. If you see your sins, the sins for which Christ died, and you behold Christ, you behold the Son of God, then you see the kind of Savior that we have. So we check ourselves, we examine ourselves, 
Take time to do this. It doesn't just help with repentance. It helps with knowing the God who loves you. How do we respond? I'll say one other thing. Uh, We should respond by holding on tight to his nearness. You hold on to him and to his closeness because it's, it's easy to be distracted, but if you, if you hang on, you find, you find and you can maintain satisfaction or what the author of Hebrews calls contentment. Listen, Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, which sounds hysterical in 21st century America. Keep your life free from the love of money. Good luck. A coffee is $6. (laughs) A McDonald's, it used to be two bucks. It's like six. Everything is six bucks or more now. I don't know what that would happen. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That sounds quaint. That sounds like, okay, maybe if you live like an Amish person and never saw any other stuff that we have, right? Keep your life free. You keep your life free from the, how am I supposed to keep my life free from the love of money? And how am I supposed to be content with what I have? The answer is here. Because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am near. I am close. God says, I am enough. God says, I am everything. This is why Jesus doesn't just say, hey, everybody, believe me when I speak. He does say that. And he doesn't just say, believe in me because of who I am. He does say that. He also says, Abide in me. John 15 says, abide in me, right? That means, that means maintain this existential communion with him. You embrace his nearness and, and you maintain that relationship through faith and prayer and the reading of God's word and worshiping with God's people and, and all of these things and more. We hold on to him and his nearness. Listen to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 gives us another picture of this abiding with God in his nearness. Psalm 73, 23 says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Nearness, right? I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. That's how close. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is enough. With whatever the world takes from us, it cannot take away God or his nearness, and he is enough. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works." That's how we respond to the nearness of God. We identify our needs, our weaknesses, our sins, and then we look to Jesus. We check ourselves and we hold on to the nearness of our Savior. And this is what Advent is ultimately doing, right? Advent is just another tool by which we remember. We remember Christ, we remember the gospel. Advent is reminding us of our need. We all Everyone here needs a savior. We need the promises of God. Without them, we are ruined. Without them, we are incomplete. 
Advent reminds us not only of our need, but of God's grace, his provision. He draws near. Kindly, patiently, gently, he draws near to give life to the dead, sight to the blind, right? He, he helps us to understand and to become the very people we need to be in the midst of a world that is sometimes very confusing. Advent reminds us of our need of God's grace and of our opportunity. You are not, you are not so far gone that God isn't close. He's close. He's here. And he's offering you grace. Like, listen, you've put distance between you and, and God through your own sin. If you're, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then you have created distance between you and your maker through your own sin. So you may be far off, but God is drawn near and extends his hands out to you through Christ, close enough for you to grasp, but you must grasp them. You must believe. He offers you all of the promises that he made to Israel he made all of these promises to all sinners who are willing to believe, and he's extending that to you. You have the opportunity today. This goes for Christians as well, because we know what it is to, to embrace and enjoy the nearness of God. We know what it is for the nearness of God to be our good and then to forget it and to wander and to become cold or, or disinterested or frustrated or complacent. The exhortation for us all is the same. We'll take it from Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would meet our greatest needs, that you would heal our broken hearts, Lord, that you would cause us to become the people you've designed us to be by making us look more like our Savior. And we know, Lord, that this is not just an external change. This is something that you bring about in our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that as we seek to maintain communion with you, and hold on to your nearness through Christ. Help us to understand that we have to do this together as your children, that we support and encourage each other as we look to the Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.